Phase the Third, The Rally, Part One, from Tess of the D'Urbervilles, by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. In general, the cows were milked as they presented themselves, without fancy or choice. But certain cows will show a fondness for a particular pair of hands, sometimes carrying this predilection so far as to refuse to stand at all except to their favourite, the pail of a stranger being unceremoniously kicked over. It was Derryman Crick's rule to insist on breaking down these partialities and aversions by constant interchange, since otherwise, in the event of a milkman or maid going away from the dairy, he was placed in a difficulty. The maid's private aims, however, were the reverse of the dairyman's rule. The daily selection by each damsel of the eight or ten cows, to which she had grown accustomed, rendering the operation on their willing udders surprisingly easy and effortless. Tess, like her compeers, soon discovered which of the cows had a preference for her style of manipulation, and her fingers having become delicate from the long domiciliary imprisonments to which she had subjected herself at intervals during the last two or three years, she would have been glad to meet the milcher's views in this respect. Out of the whole ninety-five there were eight in particular, Dumpling, Fancy, Lofty, Mist, Old Pretty, Young Pretty, Tidy, and Loud, who, though the teats of one or two were as hard as carrots, gave down to her with a readiness that made her work on them a mere touch of the fingers. Knowing, however, the dairyman's wish, she endeavoured conscientiously to take the animals just as they came, excepting the very hard yielders which she could not yet manage. But she soon found a curious correspondence between the ostensibly chance position of the cows and her wishes in this matter, till she felt that their order could not be the result of accident. The dairyman's pupil had lent a hand in getting the cows together of late and at the fifth or sixth time she turned her eyes, as she rested against the cow, full of sly inquiry upon him. "'Mr. Clare, you have ranged the cows,' she said, blushing, and, in making the accusation, symptoms of a smile gently lifted her upper lip in spite of her, so as to show the tips of her teeth, the lower lip remaining severely still. "'Well, it makes no difference,' said he. "'You will always be here to milk them.' "'Do you think so? I hope I shall, but I don't know.' She was angry with herself afterwards, thinking that he, unaware of her grave reasons for liking this seclusion, might have mistaken her meaning. She had spoken so earnestly to him, as if his presence were somehow a factor in her wish. Her misgiving was such that at dusk, when the milking was over, she walked in the garden alone, to continue her regrets that she had disclosed to him her discovery of his considerateness. It was a typical summer evening in June, the atmosphere being in such delicate equilibrium and so transmissive that inanimate objects seemed endowed with two or three senses, if not five. There was no distinction between the near and the far, and an auditor felt close to everything within the horizon. The soundlessness impressed her as a positive entity, rather than as a mere negation of noise. It was broken by the strumming of strings. Tess had heard those notes in the attic above her head. Dim, flattened, constrained by their confinement, they had never appealed to her as now, 
when they wandered in the still air with a stark quality like that of nudity. To speak absolutely, both instrument and execution were poor, but the relative is all, and as she listened, Tess, like a fascinated bird, could not leave the spot. Far from leaving, she drew up towards the performer, keeping behind the hedge, that he might not guess her presence. The outskirt of the garden in which Tess found herself had been left uncultivated for some years, and was now damp and rank with juicy grass, which sent up mists of pollen at a touch, and with tall blooming weeds emitting offensive smells, weeds whose red and yellow and purple hues formed a polychrome as dazzling as that of cultivated flowers. She went stealthily as a cat through this profusion of growth, gathering cuckoo-spittle on her skirts, crackling snails that were underfoot, staining her hands with thistle-milk and slug-slime, and rubbing off upon her naked arms sticky blights, which, though snow-white on the apple-tree trunks, made madder stains on her skin. Thus she drew quite near to Clare, still unobserved of him. Tess was conscious of neither time nor space. The exultation which she had described as being producible at will by gazing at a star came now without any determination of hers. She undulated upon the thin notes of the second-hand harp, and their harmonies passed like breezes through her, bringing tears into her eyes. The floating pollen seemed to be his notes made visible, and the dampness of the garden the weeping of the garden's sensibility. Though near nightfall, the rank-smelling weed-flowers glowed as if they would not close for intentness, and waves of color mixed with the waves of sound. The light which still shone was derived mainly from a large hole in the western bank of cloud. It was like a piece of day left behind by accident, dusk having closed in elsewhere. He concluded his plaintive melody, a very simple performance, demanding no great skill, and she waited, thinking another might be begun. But, tired of playing, he had desultorily come round the fence, and was rambling up behind her. Tess, her cheeks on fire, moved away furtively, as if hardly moving at all. Angel, however, saw her light summer gown, and he spoke, his low tones reaching her, though he was some distance off. "'What makes you draw off in that way, Tess?' said he. "'Are you afraid?' "'Oh, no, sir.' not of outdoor things, especially just now, when the apple bluth is falling and everything is so green. But you have indoor fears, eh? Well, yes, sir. What of? I couldn't quite say. The milk turning sour? No. Life in general? Yes, sir. Ah, so have I, very often. This hobble of being alive is rather serious, don't you think so? It is, now you put it that way. All the same, I shouldn't have expected a young girl like you to see it so just yet. How is it you do? She maintained a hesitating silence. Come, Tess, tell me, in confidence. She thought that he meant what were the aspects of things to her, and replied shyly, the trees have inquisitive eyes, haven't they? That is, seem as if they had. And the river says, Why do you trouble me with your looks? And you seem to see numbers of tomorrows just all in a line. The first of them, the biggest and clearest, 
the others getting smaller and smaller as they stand farther away but they all seem very fierce and cruel and and as if they said i'm coming beware of me beware of me but you sir can raise up dreams with your music and drive all such horrid fancies away he was surprised to find this young woman who though a milkmaid had just that touch of rarity about her which might make her the envied of her housemates shaping such sad imaginings she was expressing in her own native phrases assisted a little by her sixth standard training feelings which might almost have been called those of the age the ache of modernism the perception arrested him less when he reflected that what are called advanced ideas are really in great part but the latest fashion in definition a more accurate expression by words in logy and ism of sensations which men and women have vaguely grasped for centuries still it was strange that they should have come to her while yet so young more than strange it was impressive interesting pathetic not guessing the cause there was nothing to remind him that experience is as to intensity and not as to duration tess's passing corporeal blight had been her mental harvest tess on her part could not understand why a man of clerical family and good education and above physical want should look upon it as a mishap to be alive for the unhappy pilgrim herself there was very good reason but how could this admirable and poetic man ever have descended into the valley of humiliation have felt with a man of us as she herself had felt two or three years ago my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than my life i loathe it i would not live alway it was true that he was at present out of his class but she knew that was only because like peter the great in a shipwright's yard he was studying what he wanted to know he did not milk cows because he was obliged to milk cows but because he was learning to be a rich and prosperous dairyman landowner agriculturist and breeder of cattle he would become an american or australian abraham commanding like a monarch his flocks and his herds his spotted and his rings straight his men-servants and his maids at times nevertheless it did seem unaccountable to her that a decidedly bookish musical thinking young man should have chosen deliberately to be a farmer and not a clergyman like his father and brothers thus neither having the clue to the other secret they were respectively puzzled at what each revealed and awaited new knowledge of each other's character and mood without attempting to pry into each other's history every day every hour brought to him one more little stroke of her nature and to her one more of his tess was trying to lead a repressed life but she little divined the strength of her own vitality at first tess seemed to regard angel clare as an intelligence rather than as a man as such she compared him with herself and at every discovery of the abundance of his illuminations of the distance between her own modest mental standpoint and the unmeasurable andean altitude of his she became quite dejected disheartened from all further effort on her own part whatever he observed her dejection one day when he had casually mentioned something to her about pastoral life in ancient greece she was gathering the buds called lords and ladies from the bank while he spoke 
why do you look so woebegone all of a sudden he asked oh tis only <laughs> about my own self she said with a frail laugh of sadness fitfully beginning to peel a lady meanwhile just a sense of what might have been with me my life looks as if it had been wasted for want of chances when i see what you know what you have read and seen and thought i feel what a nothing i am i'm like the poor queen of sheba who lived in the bible there is no more spirit in me bless my soul don't go troubling about that why he said with some enthusiasm i should be only too glad my dear tess to help you to anything in the way of history or any line of reading you would like to take up it is a lady again interrupted she holding out the bud she had peeled what i meant that there are always more ladies than lords when you come to peel them never mind about the lords and ladies would you like to take up any course of study history for example sometimes i feel i don't want to know anything more about it than i know already why not because what's the use of learning that i am one of a long row only finding out that there is set down in some old book somebody just like me and to know that i shall only act her part making me sad that's all the best is not to remember that your nature and your past doings have been just like thousands and thousands and that your coming life and doings will be like thousands and thousands what really then you don't want to learn anything i shouldn't mind learning why why the sun do shine on the just and the unjust alike she answered with a slight quaver in her voice but that's what books will not tell me tess fie for such bitterness of course he spoke with a conventional sense of duty only for that sort of wondering had not been unknown to himself in bygone days and as he looked at the unpractised mouth and lips he thought that such a daughter of the soil could only have caught up the sentiment by rote she went on peeling the lords and ladies till claire regarding for a moment the wave-like curl of her lashes as they dropped with her bent gaze on her soft cheek lingeringly went away when he was gone she stood a while thoughtfully peeling the last bud and then awakening from her reverie flung it and all the crowd of floral nobility impatiently on the ground in an ebullition of displeasure with herself for her niaiserie and with a quickening warmth in her heart of hearts how stupid he must think her in an access of hunger for his good opinion she bethought herself of what she had latterly endeavoured to forget so unpleasant had been its issues the identity of her family with that of the knightly d'urbervilles barren attribute as it was disastrous as its discovery had been in many ways to her perhaps mr clare as a gentleman and a student of history would respect her sufficiently to forget her childish conduct with the lords and ladies if he knew that those purbeck marble and alabaster people in kingsbeer church really represented her own lineal forefathers that she was no spurious d'urberville compounded of money and ambition like those at trentridge but true d'urberville to the bone but before venturing to make the revelation dubious tess indirectly sounded the dairyman as to its possible effect on mr clare 
by asking the former if Mr. Clare had any great respect for old county families when they had lost all their money and land. "'Mr. Clare,' said the dairyman emphatically, "'is one of the most rebellious Rosams you ever knowed, not a bit like the rest of his family, and if there's one thing that he do hate more than another, tis the notion of what's called a old family.' He says that it stands to reason that old families have done their spurt of work in past days and can't have anything left in them now. There's the billets and the drink cards and the greys and the San Quintons and the Hardys and the Goulds, who used to own the lands for miles down this valley. You could buy em all up now for an old song almost. Why, our little Retty Priddle here, you know, is one of the Paradells, the old family that used to own lots of the lands out by King's Hintock, now owned by the Earl of Wessex, afore even he or his was heard of. Well, Mr. Clare found this out, and spoke quite scornful to the poor girl for days. Ah, he says to her, you'll never make a good dairymaid. All your skill was used up ages ago in Palestine, and you must lie fallow for a thousand years to get strength for more deeds. Our boy came here the other day asking for a job, and said his name was Matt, and when we asked him his surname, he said he'd never heard that he had any surname, and when we asked why, he said he supposed his folks hadn't been established long enough. "'Ah, you're the very boy I want,' says Mr. Clare, jumping up and shaking hands with him. "'I've got great hopes of you, and gave him a half a crown.' "'Oh, no, he can't stomach old families.' After hearing this caricature of Clare's opinion, poor Tess was glad that she had not said a word in a weak moment about her family, even though it was so unusually old almost to have gone round the circle and become a new one. Besides, another dairy girl was as good as she, it seemed, in that respect. She held her tongue about the Derberville vault and the knight of the conqueror whose name she bore. The insight afforded into Clare's character suggested to her that it was largely owing to her supposed untraditional newness that she had won interest in his eyes. CHAPTER Twenty. The season developed and matured. Another year's instalment of flowers, leaves, nightingales, thrushes, finches, and such ephemeral creatures took up their positions where, only a year ago, others had stood in their place when these were nothing more than germs and inorganic particles. Rays from the sunrise drew forth the buds and stretched them into long stalks, lifted up sap in noiseless streams, opened petals, and sucked out scents in invisible jets and breathings. Derryman Crick's household of maids and men lived on comfortably, placidly, even merrily. Their position was perhaps the happiest of all positions in the social scale, being above the line at which neediness ends, and below the line at which the convenance begin to cramp natural feelings, and the stress of threadbare modishness makes too little of enough. Thus passed the leafy time when arborescence seems to be the one thing aimed at out of doors. Tess and Clare unconsciously studied each other, ever balanced on the edge of a passion, yet apparently keeping out of it. All the while they were converging, under an irresistible law, as surely as two streams in one vale. Tess had never in her recent life been so happy as she was now, possibly never would be so happy again. She was, for one thing, physically and mentally suited among these new surroundings, 
the sapling which had rooted down to a poisonous stratum on the spot of its sowing had been transplanted to a deeper soil moreover she and claire also stood as yet on the debatable land between predilection and love where no profundities have been reached no reflections have set in awkwardly inquiring whither does this new current tend to carry me what does it mean to my future how does it stand towards my past tess was the merest stray phenomenon to angel clare as yet a rosy warming apparition which had only just acquired the attribute of persistence in his consciousness so he allowed his mind to be occupied with her deeming his preoccupation to be no more than a philosopher's regard of an exceedingly novel fresh and interesting specimen of womankind they met continually they could not help it they met daily in that strange and solemn interval the twilight of the morning in the violet or pink dawn for it was necessary to rise early so very early here milking was done betimes and before the milking came the skimming which began at a little past three it usually fell to the lot of some one or other of them to wake the rest the first being aroused by an alarm clock and as tess was the latest arrival and they soon discovered that she could be depended upon not to sleep through the alarm as others did this task was thrust most frequently upon her no sooner had the hour of three struck and whizzed than she left her room and ran to the dairyman's door then up the ladder to angels calling him in a loud whisper then woke her fellow milkmaids by the time that tess was dressed claire was downstairs and out in the humid air the remaining maids and the dairyman usually gave themselves another turn on the pillow and did not appear till a quarter of an hour later the grey half-tones of daybreak are not the grey half-tones of the day's close though the degree of their shade may be the same in the twilight of the morning light seems active darkness passive in the twilight of evening it is the darkness which is active and crescent and the light which is the drowsy reverse being so often possibly not always by chance the first two persons to get up at the dairy house they seemed to themselves the first persons up of all the world in these early days of her residence here tess did not skim but went out of doors at once after rising where he was generally awaiting her the spectral half-compounded aqueous light which pervaded the open mead impressed them with a feeling of isolation as if they were adam and eve at this dim inceptive stage of the day tess seemed to clare to exhibit a dignified largeness both of disposition and physique an almost regnant power possibly because he knew that at that preternatural time hardly any woman so well endowed in person as she was likely to be walking in the open air within the boundaries of the horizon very few in all england fair women are usually asleep at midsummer dawns she was close at hand and the rest were nowhere the mixed singular luminous gloom in which they walked along together to the spot where the cows lay often made him think of the resurrection hour he little thought that the magdalen might be at his side whilst all the landscape was in neutral shade his companion's face which was the focus of his eyes rising above the mist stratum seemed to have a sort of phosphorescence upon it she looked ghostly as if she were merely a soul at large in reality her face without appearing to do so had caught the cold gleam of day from the northeast his own face 
though he did not think of it, wore the same aspect to her. It was then, as has been said, that she impressed him most deeply. She was no longer the milkmaid, but a visionary essence of woman, a whole sex condensed into one typical form. He called her Artemis, Demeter, and other fanciful names half-teasingly, which she did not like because she did not understand them. "'Call me Tess,' she would say askance, and he did. Then it would grow lighter, and her features would become simply feminine. They had changed from those of a divinity who could confer bliss to those of a being who craved it. At these non-human hours they could get quite close to the waterfowl. Herons came, with a great bold noise as of opening doors and shutters, out of the boughs of a plantation which they frequented at the side of the mead, or, if already on the spot, heartily maintained their standing in the water as the pair walked by, watching them by moving their heads round in a slow, horizontal, passionless wheel, like the turn of puppets by clockwork. They could then see the faint summer fogs in layers, woolly, level, and apparently no thicker than counterpanes, spread about the meadows in detached remnants of small extent. On the grey moisture of the grass were marks where the cows had lain through the night, dark green islands of dry herbage, the size of their carcasses, in the general sea of dew. From each island proceeded a serpentine trail, by which the cow had rambled away to feed after getting up, at the end of which trail they found her, the snoring puff from her nostrils when she recognized them, making an intenser little fog of her own amid the prevailing one. Then they drove the animals back to the barton, or sat down to milk them on the spot, as the case might require. Or perhaps the summer fog was more general, and the meadows lay like a white sea, out of which the scattered trees rose like dangerous rocks. Birds would soar through it into the upper radiance, and hang on the wing sunning themselves, or alight on the wet rails subdividing the mead, which now shone like glass rods. Minute diamonds of moisture from the mist hung too upon Tess's eyelashes, and drops upon her hair like seed-pearls. When the day grew quite strong and commonplace, these dried off her. Moreover, Tess then lost her strange and ethereal beauty. Her teeth, lips, and eyes scintillated in the sunbeams, and she was again the dazzlingly fair dairymaid only, who had to hold her own against the other women of the world. About this time they would hear Derryman Crick's voice, lecturing the non-resident milkers for arriving late, and speaking sharply to old Deborah Feander for not washing her hands. "'For heaven's sake, pop thy hands under the pump, Deb! Upon my soul, if the London folk only knowed of thee and thy slovenly ways, they'd swaller their milk and butter more mention than they do already, and that's saying a good deal.' The milking progressed, till towards the end Tess and Clare, in common with the rest, could hear the heavy breakfast-table dragged out from the wall in the kitchen by Mrs. Crick, this being the invariable preliminary to each meal, the same horrible scrape accompanying its return journey when the table had been cleared. CHAPTER Twenty One. There was a great stir in the milk-house just after breakfast. The churn revolved as usual but the butter would not come. Whenever this happened, the dairy was paralyzed. Squish, squash echoed the milk in the great cylinder, but never arose the sound they waited for. 
Derryman Crick and his wife, the milkmaids Tess, Marion, Retty Priddle, Is Hewitt, and the married ones from the cottages, also Mr. Clare, Jonathan Cale, old Deborah, and the rest, stood gazing hopelessly at the churn, and the boy who kept the horse going outside put on moonlike eyes to show his sense of the situation. Even the melancholy horse himself seemed to look in at the window in acquiring despair at each walk round. "'Tis years since I went to conjurer Trendle's son in Egdon. Years!' said the dairyman bitterly. "'And he was nothing to what his father had been. I have said fifty times, if I've said once, that I don't believe in him, though I do cast folks' waters very true. But I shall have to go to him if he's alive.' oh yes i shall have to go to him if this sort of thing continues even mr clare began to feel tragical at the dairyman's desperation a conjurer fall to the other side of casterbridge that they used to call wido was a very good man when i was a boy said jonathan cale but he's rotten as touchwood by now my grandfather used to go to conjurer mintern out at owlscombe and a clever man he were so i've heard grandfer say continued Mr. Crick, but there's no such genuine folk about nowadays. Mrs. Crick's mind kept nearer to the matter in hand. "'Perhaps somebody in the house is in love,' she said tentatively. "'I've heard tell in my younger days that that will cause it. Why, Crick, that maid we had years ago, do you mind, and how the butter didn't come then?' "'Ah, oh, yes, yes.' but that isn't the rights of it it had nothing to do with love-making i can mind all about it twas the damage to the churn he turned to clare jack dollop a horse's bird of a fellow we had here as a milker at one time sir courted a young woman over at melstock and deceived her as he had deceived many afore but he had another sort of woman to reckon with this time and it was not the girl herself one holy thursday of all days in the almanac we was here as we mid be now only there was no churnin in hand when he seed the girl's mother coming up to the door with a great brass mounted umbrella in her hand that would have felled a ox and saying do jack dollop work here because i want him i have a big bone to pick with he i can assure you and some way behind her mother walked jack's young woman crying bitterly into her handkerchief oh lord here's a time said jack looking out a winder at him she'll murder me where shall i get where, where shall i don't tell her where i be and with that he scrambled into the churn through the trap-door and shut himself inside just as the young woman's mother busted into the milk-house the villain where is he says she i'll claw his face for him i'll em, let me only catch him well she hunted about everywhere bally raggin jack by side and by seam jack lying almost stifled inside the churn and the poor maid oh or young woman rather standin at the door crying her eyes out i shall never forget it never twould have melted a marble stone but she couldn't find him nowhere at all the dairyman paused, and one or two words of comment came from the listeners. Dairyman Crick's stories often seemed to be ended when they were really not so, and strangers were betrayed into premature interjections of finality, though old friends knew better. The narrator went on. "'Well, 
how the old woman should have had the wit to guess it i could never tell but she found out that he was inside that there churn without saying a word she took hold of the winch it was turned by hand power then and round she swung him and jack began to flop about inside oh lord stop the churn let me out says he popping out his head i shall be churned into a pummy he was a cowardly chap in his heart as such men mostly be not till ye make amends for ravaging her virgin innocence says the old woman stop the churn you old witch screams he you call me old witch do ye you deceiver she says when you ought to have been calling me mother-in-law these last five months and on went the churn and jack's bones rattled round again well none of us ventured to interfere and at last he promised to make it right with her yes i'll be as good as my word he said and so it ended that day while the listeners were smiling their comments there was a quick movement behind their backs and they looked round tess pale-faced had gone to the door how warm tis to-day she said almost inaudibly it was warm and none of them connected her withdrawal from the reminiscences of the dairyman he went forward and opened the door for her saying with tender raillery why maidy he frequently with unconscious irony gave her this pet name the prettiest milker i've got in my dairy you mustn't get so fagged as this at the first breath of summer weather or we shall be finely put for want of ye during dog-days shan't we mr clare i i was faint and i think i am better out of doors she said mechanically and disappeared outside fortunately for her the milk in the revolving churn at that moment changed its squashing for a decided flack flack tis coming cried mrs crick and the attention of all was called off from tess that fair sufferer soon recovered herself externally but she remained much depressed all the afternoon when the evening milking was done she did not care to be with the rest of them and went out of doors wandering along she knew not whither she was wretched oh so wretched at the perception that to her companions the dairyman's story had been rather a humorous narration than otherwise none of them but herself seemed to know the sorrow of it to a certainty not one knew how cruelly it touched the tender place in her experience the evening sun was now ugly to her like a great inflamed wound in the sky only a solitary cracked voice reed sparrow greeted her from the bushes by the river in a sad machine-made tone resembling that of a past friend whose friendship she had outworn in those long june days the milkmaids and indeed most of the household went to bed at sunset or sooner the morning work before milking being so early and heavy at a time of full pails tess usually accompanied her fellows upstairs to-night however she was the first to go to their common chamber and she dozed when the other girls came in she saw them undressing in the orange light of the vanished sun which flushed their forms with its colour she dozed again but she was awakened by their voices and quietly turned her eyes towards them neither of her three chamber companions had got into bed they were standing in a group in their nightgowns barefooted at the window the last red rays of the west still warming their faces and necks and the walls around them 
all were watching somebody in the garden with a deep interest their three faces close together a jovial and round one a pale one with dark hair and a fair one whose tresses were auburn don't push you can see as well as i said reddy the auburn-haired and youngest girl without removing her eyes from the window tis no use for you to be in love with him any more than me reddy priddle said jolly-faced marian the eldest slyly his thoughts be of other cheeks than thine reddy priddle still looked and the others looked again there he is again cried is hewitt the pale girl with damp dark hair and keenly cut lips you needn't say anything is answered reddy for i seed you kissing his shade what did you see her doing asked marian why he was standing over the way-tub to let off the way and the shade of his face came upon the wall behind close to is who was standing there filling a vat she put her mouth against the wall and kissed the shade of his mouth i seed her though he didn't oh is hewitt said marian a rosy spot came into the middle of is hewitt's cheek well there was no harm in it she declared with attempted coolness and if i be in love with him so is reddy too and so be you marian come to that marian's full face could not blush past its chronic pinkness ay she said what a tale oh there he is again dear eyes dear face dear mr clare there you've owned it so have you so have we all said marian with the dry frankness of complete indifference to opinion it is silly to pretend otherwise amongst ourselves though we need not own it to other folks i would just marry him to-morrow so would i and more murmured is hewitt and i too whispered the more timid reddy the listener grew warm well, we can't all marry him said is we shan't either of us which is worse still said the eldest there he is again they all three blew him a silent kiss why asked reddy quickly because he likes tess durbeyfield best said marian lowering her voice i have watched him every day and have found it out there was a reflective silence but she don't care anything for him at length breathed reddy well i sometimes think that too but how silly all this is said is hewitt impatiently of course he won't marry any of us or tess either a gentleman's son who's going to be a great landowner and farmer abroad more likely to ask us to come with him as farmhands at so much a year one sighed and another sighed and marian's plump figure sighed biggest of all somebody in bed hard by sighed too tears came into the eyes of reddy priddle the pretty red-haired youngest the last bud of the paradels so important to the county annals they watched silently a little longer their three faces still close together as before and the triple hues of their hair mingling but the unconscious mr clare had gone indoors and they saw him no more and the shades beginning to deepen they crept into their beds in a few minutes they heard him ascend the ladder to his own room marian was soon snoring but is did not drop into forgetfulness for a long time reddy priddle cried herself to sleep the deeper passioned tess was very far from sleeping even then 
This conversation was another of the bitter pills she had been obliged to swallow that day. Scarce the least feeling of jealousy arose in her breast. For that matter, she knew herself to have the preference. Being more finely formed, better educated, and, though the youngest, except Retty, more woman than either, she perceived that only the slightest ordinary care was necessary for holding her own in Angel Clare's heart, against these her candid friends. But the grave question was, ought she to do this? There was, to be sure, hardly a ghost of a chance for either of them, in a serious sense. But there was, or had been, a chance of one or the other inspiring him with a passing fancy for her, and enjoying the pleasure of his attentions while he stayed here. Such unequal attachments had led to marriage, and she had heard from Mrs. Crick that Mr. Clare had one day asked, in a laughing way, what would be the use of his marrying a fine lady, and all the while ten thousand acres of colonial pasture to feed, and cattle to rear, and corn to reap. A farm woman would be the only sensible kind of wife for him. But whether Mr. Clare had spoken seriously or not, why should she, who could never conscientiously allow any man to marry her now, and who had religiously determined that she never would be tempted to do so, draw off Mr. Clare's attention from other women, for the brief happiness of sunning herself in his eyes, while he remained at Talbot Hayes. End of Part Two